Romans 11, verse 16. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Skip ahead to verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The Father, we approach You now recognizing all things are Yours. Our very lives, Father. And that means, Lord, the life of the believer as well as the life of the unbeliever truly belongs to You. You created us. You made us. You formed us and fashioned us and breathed life into us. You are the one who gives to those who accept Your grace, who receive You in faith. You give Your Spirit. And You give life, new life, fresh life as we are born again. You're the one. All things belong to You. And so we ourselves... Lord, as we've talked about and seen Israel, Israel belongs to You. And like so many, Father, Israel as a nation does not yet fully recognize that, comprehend what it means to be chosen of God. Many people don't. Father, I pray that we will learn to live life in such a way that that is shown. What it means to be a person who belongs to God. I pray this morning that You will bless us with Your Word. And though we think about and consider just one primary verse this morning, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be touched with a huge truth. Help us to hear you now, Father, in Jesus' name and by your Spirit, we pray and ask these things. Amen. We've been talking about not just Israel. Israel's the subtext. The primary text is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. As evidenced in his relationship with Israel, we see how God has been faithful, continues to be faithful, and will be faithful in days to come. The very faithfulness of God. But this morning, I want to turn it around. I want to talk about our faithfulness to God. In response. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I love that. That's how I want to be seen. A a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And Paul says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. It's not an option. It is a requirement of those who would be stewards of the mysteries of God, servants of Christ, that we be found faithful. Back in the late first century, there was a man by the name of Antipas. Perhaps you've heard of him. Antipas, according to Tertullian, was a dentist and a disciple. So he was DDSD. (laughs) He was a dentist in the early church, a follower of Jesus Christ. And once a year throughout the Roman Empire, it was required that all people offer incense to Caesar. Antipas politely declined. The procurator of Pergamum, the city in which Antipas lived, said, Antipas, if you refuse, the whole world will be against you. And Antipas replied, that I am against the whole world. Antipas against all. 
His name even means against all, to stand against. He would not deny Jesus by offering up incense to Caesar. I wonder in that historical story how many of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in Pergamum at that church were offering incense to Caesar on that day just to avoid a scuffle. And yet Antipas said, I refuse. I'm against the whole world if the whole world be against me. And so, as a result, they fried him alive in a huge brass bowl. Listen to what Jesus said about him. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, You hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus calls Antipas my faithful one. I love that. I want to hear that. Now, my hope and my prayer for you is that none of you are ever called upon to take a stand like that. To have to stand against government to the point where your standing against brings about your execution by being fried alive in a brass bowl. But you are called upon, I am called upon, to be faithful. To take a faithful stand when the moments arise and when the opportunities are here. And who among his servants doesn't want to hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Those words hang in my head often. Jesus spoke those, Matthew 25, 21. And I think, I want to hear his voice say that. That's all I want. Well done, good and faithful servant. Good job. I remember as a kid how significant it was for my dad to use those those simple words, I'm proud of you, son. I'm proud of you, son. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faith is the language of God. So much of what He's doing in us and through us in this world is teaching us how to live by faith. Teaching us what faith really means. What faith is about. Friday we were at the uh, memorial service for Renee Bristow's mother, Lula. And it was, it was precious, especially what Renee shared. Very, very touching. I, I wish I had a copy of it to read to you. But one of the things that she said, and it so struck me, was she said in the 35 days, and it had been a 35-day process from things really going downhill to finally her mother going home to be with Jesus. And she said in the 35 days she really struggled with the Lord at different times asking Him why do we have to go through this and what are you doing? And as apparent by her words she saw in those 35 days that God was still working on her mother's heart. That there were some final things that He was doing with her prior to receiving her on into eternity. I thought how profound a thought. And maybe you're in that place where life is really hard right now and you're saying, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why am I here? What's going on? Why don't you just take me now? You may recall we talked about this Wednesday night. Elijah said that. Take me now. I'm done. Just take my life. If you're here, it's because God is at work in your life. He is doing something for you, in you, faithfully. And He's calling you and me to learn faithfulness. Understand what that really means. We've read this verse a hundred times if we've read it once. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is 
And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Get this. Faithfulness is very simply faith applied. Faithfulness is faith applied. It is faith in action. It's actually practicing the faith that I profess. Oh yes, I believe in Jesus. Show me. That's the entire book of James, you know. Show me your faith by your works. It's not work your way to heaven. It's show your faith. Faithfulness is faith applied. And God has given us the building blocks of faith. He has very tangibly shown us throughout His Word and by His Spirit how we can develop and cultivate and nurture and grow faith in our lives. He's given us physical, practical ways to do it. To build faithfulness of heart and soul and strength. Uh, To engage actively in the process of being, as Paul said, conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29. And we're coming into, in Romans, and I love this next section, we're approaching Romans 12 through 16, and it is the real-time, hands-on, practical part of this letter. Most of the doctrine now has been covered. And it's phenomenal doctrine, as you've known, as you've heard, as we've studied this together. Romans 1 through 3, dealing with condemnation. And the reality that no matter who you are, or where you've come from, or what you've done, all people stand condemned. Simply by the sin nature that is in us. It is the reason for sin and darkness in the world. It is the reason for hurt and pain. And so we stand condemned. We have a need. And then in Romans 3.21 through Romans 8, Paul reveals the answer to that need in Jesus, our salvation. Part 1, condemnation. Part 2, salvation. And part of that whole salvation process, Paul deals with sanctification. How we become more and more like Christ, conformed to His image. Paul explains in that whole section as we've gone through it, the righteousness of God. Condemnation because we lack the righteousness of God. Salvation because God says, here, let me give you my righteousness and I will make you righteous based on what I've done. Beautiful doctrine. And then of course we come to Romans 9, 10, and 11 and it's vindication. Vindication for the faithfulness of God as He deals with His people Israel, as He keeps His promises, kept His promises, and will keep in the days to come His promises. And Paul points that whole thing out. And yes, it is about Israel, but more so it is about God's faithfulness to His people. Well, finally, we're coming into that section of Romans 12 through 16, which I would call exhortation. Or application, where Paul says, understanding all that we've covered in these first 12 or 11 chapters, let's talk about how to live. Let's deal with Christian life, boots on the ground, living. And I was really excited to get on into Romans 12. But halfway through studying for Wednesday night, I landed on verse 16. And the more I studied it, the more I realized we needed to sit here and think about this. Prepare to be exhorted to an applied faith. If you're anything like me, I grew up going to church. And faith was just kind of what we did. You know, it was just, you went to church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You did the church thing. And then you went on and lived your life. It was a very secular perspective that I had. And I blame myself entirely, but it was everything in a box. Church was in this box, and then I had school in this box. And I had my friends and my social life in this box, and my family life in that box. And everything was boxed up. That's really a good definition of secular for you. 
And I misunderstood the application. And that is faithfulness. Faithfulness is not going Sunday to Sunday. It's going Sunday morning at 8.30 to Sunday morning at 8.31. And then Sunday morning at 9 and 9.05 and 10.35 and 11.20. Faithfulness is moment by moment living our life in Christ, whether it's on a Sunday or a Wednesday or any other day of the week. It's how we live with Him and in Him and for Him. And we are called to be a people who are faithful, not a people who give mental assent to the Gospel once or twice a week. God doesn't let us off the hook. So, we're going to talk about all this, get into this, but understand if you would be a servant of God, a steward of the mysteries of God, of Christ, it is required of servants, of stewards, that they be found faithful. So with that in mind, verse 16 again, just the first part of the verse. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also What in the world are you talking about, Paul? It seems like one of those out-of-the-blue statements. He's talking about Israel. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead, fantastic, I'm tracking. And all of a sudden, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And we're into a cooking lesson. This is kind of a left turn, Paul. Of course, then he says, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. First piece of dough, the lump, the root, the branches. And you may think you know what he's talking about. On the surface, the root is Jesus, is dedicated to God, and therefore, so are the branches. Israel is dedicated, or at least is called to God, belongs to God. If the root is holy, that is Jesus, then the branches are too. That they are set apart, consecrated to God, just as Jesus is. If the root is, then the branches are. I get this. If the first piece is holy, the lump is also. And if you've read it like I have in the past, you think, okay, well that's kind of like the leaven picture. That you have a holy piece of of dough, and the holiness kind of works its way all throughout the dough. That's not what he's saying. That is not the application here. As is so often the case in God's Word, there is so much more here. This is prophetical, it is principled, and it is practical. So let's start with the prophetical. The prophetical first piece. What does Paul mean by the first piece of dough and the lump? Let's pull back and look at the Greek. The Greek word for first piece is a very important word in the Scriptures. It's not used much. But it's significant. And it's aparche. <laughs> You've got to kind of flim up. And I've got a little allergy thing going this morning, so it shouldn't be tough for me to say the word. <laughs> aparche. <laughs> Alright? Aparche. If you want to spell it out, aparche, which means first piece. It doesn't mean first piece of dough. The of dough is added and kind of, I think, throws us a little bit unless we understand the history behind it. So aparche, first piece, and then you've got lump. If the first piece, the aparche is holy, the lump is also, and the lump is furamah. And furamah is translated kneaded dough. Kneaded dough. But it's the first piece we really need. Okay? If you don't want to be mixed up. If you don't want to be a half-baked believer. You need... The first piece. The aparche. 
is so significant. Some of you are going to, you know, go home and go, Need! Oh, K-N-A, I get it. That's, okay. Some of you are going to drive home and go, man, he's just getting worse. The word dough, as I said here, is added in and is not original to the text. Okay, so you've got the first piece. If the first piece is holy, the aparche, then so is the lump, the purama. Go back to the book of Numbers. All the way back to Numbers chapter 15, and we'll understand a little bit more about what Paul is talking about. Numbers 15, 17. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book in the Bible, so it's not too far in. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you enter the land where I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering. As the offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations. And that's the first piece that Paul is talking about in Romans eleven sixteen. If the first piece is holy, then the lump is also. But the first piece in Numbers 15, he's not talking about the first scoop of cookie dough from the bowl. He's not talking about when you're getting ready to make your bread, make God a cake and bring that to Him. That's not the word. In fact, the Hebrew word here for dough is erasah, and erasah means coarse grain. So of the first of your coarse grain, you offer it to God. What does He mean by this? Well, He's actually repeating what He's already shared. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Go back to Leviticus, one book back. Chapter 23. And God does this, by the way, and I love this about the Scriptures, is He'll tell people something, and then He'll tell them again, slightly differently, but it's the same idea. He'll come at it again. And then He'll do it again. And and then a third, a fourth, a fifth time, He will continue to repeat over and over until people get it and understand what He's asking of them. So here He's talking about the same thing once again, Leviticus 23, verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with it its drink offering, a fourth of a hin of wine. Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering, note this, to your God... You shall eat neither bread, nor roasted grain, nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It's called the first fruits offering. And that, I believe, is what Paul is referring to when he says if the first piece is holy. And understand that in the first fruits offering, what God said to Israel is, You bring the very first of your fruits to me. And you offer that up. And you are not to eat of the grain. 
You are not to eat of the barley that has been harvested until you first have brought the first fruits. You bring that sheaf for a wave offering on what they call the festival of first fruits. Now, the Jewish festivals are not hard to track. There's only a handful of them, seven on the Jewish calendar, seven annual festivals that were appointed by God for Israel, and four of them are in the spring, which we're in the midst of talking about here in Leviticus 23, and three of them are in the fall, and those are talked about later in Leviticus 23. Here are the spring feasts, four of them. First off, on the 14th of Nisan is Pesach, Passover. You all know about Passover, right? The the deliverance of the Jewish people of Israel out of Egypt and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And that allowed the Lord then to pass over the people of Israel and not bring judgment on them, but to bring them out of the land. Passover on the 14th of Nisan. Immediately followed on the 15th of Nisan, which again is in the spring, by Chag Hamatzot, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, that would last seven days from Shabbat to Shabbat. Passover would be then on a Friday and then unleavened bread beginning on Shabbat to the next Shabbat for an entire week. They were to eat only of this unleavened bread. It was a special Shabbat. A holy convocation, the Lord calls it. So Nisan 14th, Passover, Nisan 15th, Chag Hamatzot. And Nisan 16th then was Reshit Katsir, first fruits. So not on Shabbat, because that was a day of rest, but on Reshit Katsir, on the next day they would come and they would bring this wave offering to the Lord. And then 50 days would go by from Passover until the 6th of Sivan on the Jewish calendar, which was Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, which we call... Pentecost. What's this all about? First of all, understand again that the first three of these four feasts are all scrunched together over a weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Passover, unleavened bread, and then first fruits. Celebrating the wave of the first sheaf of barley and the offerings of the people. Why? Because, get this, the first fruits belonged to the Lord. They belonged to the Lord, the first fruits. It was set up as a perpetual reminder of God's ongoing provision for his people Israel. And the concept of first fruits, note this, was not just about the fruit of the land, it was also about the fruit of the womb. Not the fruit of the loom, that's a completely different thing. The fruit of the womb, Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine. the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me, God said. You have a child, he belongs to me. He's mine. The Lord claims him. And the next is 34.19. The first of offspring of every womb belongs to me, says the Lord. And all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep, sons, lambs, cows, goats, all belong, the firstborn, all belonged to God. Now, if you were in a pagan religion, you'd go, oh, child sacrifice. Firstborn. Not with God. He abhors child sacrifice. Absolutely. He says, no, but your firstborn belongs to me. Well, how does that work? Because we know the lamb, firstborn lamb was sacrificed 
firstborn among your cattle sacrificed, the firstborn among all the clean animals that people had would be sacrifices and offering to the Lord because the firstborn belonged to Him. What about the sons? Look back in Numbers chapter 18. Numbers 18.15 where God says every first issue of the womb of all flesh whether man or animal which they offer to the Lord shall be yours nevertheless and he's speaking to the priests there the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem as to their redemption price from a month old you shall redeem them by your valuation five shekels in silver so if a firstborn son was then brought to the temple and dedicated as Jesus was that dedication came with a redemption price Five shekels of silver. Which, by the way, you Bible students, that's why silver is a picture of redemption in the Bible. Five shekels of silver for the redemption of the firstborn son. And they would pay that there in that first month. Reading on, uh, he says, Five shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty giras. But the firstborn of an ox, or the firstborn of a sheep, or of the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and shall offer up their fat in smoke as an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. So what he's declaring here, and he's doing it in several different places, several different ways, to seed this into the mentality and understanding of Israel. He's saying, first, the clean animals, you set them apart to me. If you have a clean animal, like a firstborn lamb, he's mine. You bring him to me. You offer him as sacrifice at the temple. But if you have a firstborn son, or firstborn of any unclean animals, you got to pay a redemption price. Five shekels, or five yeah, shekels of silver. You've got to pay that, and then that son is redeemed back to you. And the point is this, anything set apart, dedicated, holy to the Lord, must either be sacrificed or redeemed. Those are the two choices. Sacrifice or redemption. Why did God have Israel do all that weird stuff? I've already told you. But I'll have Peter tell you now, 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You were redeemed, he says, with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. My friends, the whole thing was prophetical. God didn't set this up because He so enjoyed the smell of blood. He set it up as a prophetical picture down through the centuries of Israel that when Jesus, His own Son, came as the Lamb of the world to be sacrificed for our redemption, we would say, Oh, now we understand. Now we see. It is the prophetical picture. The first fruits offering of the great harvest of humanity is Jesus. He is the Rashid. He is the first fruits offering. 1 Corinthians, check this out, 15, verse 21 through 23. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own order, Paul says. Christ, the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. 
seeking to understand that line. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at His coming. I, I confess I've been confused by that in the past. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are His at His coming. Does, is that three different groups? Christ, the first fruits, and then those who are His at His coming. Three groups of people, is that what He's talking about? No. Not at all. In fact, the phrase first fruits is singular and refers to Christ. Christ is the first fruits. Christ is the aparche. And that's the word that Paul uses there, Christ, the aparche. He's not referring to Jesus and then a bunch of fruits. <laughs> He's referring to Jesus as the first Peace Back in Romans 11, and you can go back there, if the first piece, the aparche is holy, the lump is also, and Paul says, Christ is the aparche. Christ the first fruits. Christ the first piece. Christ is the holy one. So we don't need to even question or wonder anymore in verse 16 of Romans 11 what the first piece is referring to. The aparche is Jesus. The aparche, the application, you might say, of the aparche is Christ Himself fulfilling the prophecy of first fruits. So even as Israel would offer up the first fruits, so God says, I will offer my son. He is the first fruits, the aparche, for the harvest of the whole world. And it's a beautiful tie-in that Paul makes right here, a prophetical picture literally of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, if you put it together, was resurrected on Rashid Katsir. His resurrection happened on the Feast of First Fruits on that Sunday. Even as Israel was bringing the first fruits sheaf of the barley as a wave offering before the Lord, Jesus was already out of the tomb on that day. And every single one of the feasts of Israel, the spring feasts, Everyone was fulfilled literally by Jesus. They are all prophetic pictures of Jesus. Passover, the Lamb sacrificed. Jesus was crucified on Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. No leaven, no sin, and the sinless one who died was now in the grave. The Feast of First Fruits. Speaking of the first offering, which was Jesus who resurrected on first fruits, 50 days went by from Passover, and you come to Shavuot, Pentecost, and what happens there? The church is born. All of that has been fulfilled, literally, those feasts. There are three feasts left. Three fall feasts. Rosh Hashanah, which is also called Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. Followed by Yom Tippur, which is the Day of Atonement, followed then ultimately by Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'm not going to talk about those three this morning, but all three are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And I can't wait for those feasts to truly happen. Well, all of this brings us back. First fruits is Jesus. Christ was raised up, set apart to the Lord. And as Jesus, the first piece is holy, so is the rest of the whole lumpy dough, which makes me feel a little better about my lumpiness. I am part of the lump. Israel is the first representation of the part of the lump, but we are as well now. That's the background, that's the understanding, that's the prophecy. But this is where it gets intensely personal and very practical. If the first piece is holy, the lump is also. 
for the people of Israel, the first peace offering first fruits was all about the consecration of the entire harvest. They would offer first fruits and then the whole harvest would be consecrated. Or speaking of the firstborn, the firstborn would either be sacrificed if it was a, an animal, a clean animal, or redeemed if it was a firstborn male. And then the whole line would be consecrated to the Lord. The firstborn son is mine. And then the rest of the offspring are consecrated by that act of redemption of the firstborn. So my question for you this morning is, would you like to be consecrated in the cultivation of faithfulness? Here's an incredibly practical way to do it. Begin with the first piece. What? There is a principle here that I believe is misunderstood by many in the Christian practice of giving. The principle of the first piece. We've talked about the prophetical first piece. That's your first point, if you will. The second is this. The principle of the first piece, or the principle of first fruits. And it is something that many Christians do not understand. It took me years to understand, and I still, at times, grapple with getting this. The Bible says, now track with me, if the first piece is holy, the lump is also. The question is, do you give the first of your dough? The real answer, whether you tithe, by the way, let me give clear definition, because some people don't understand this. The word tithe means 10%. Okay? It doesn't mean 8%, it doesn't mean 5%, it doesn't mean divvied up among all kinds of organizations. It's 10%. And tithing is tied in, the concept of tithing in Israel was tied to first fruits. That tithing, first fruits giving, the mentality was that you give the first 10%. You offer the first 10%. But listen to this, understand, the mentality of first fruits is this. Whether you tithe or not, you cannot call it giving. Your tithing is not your giving at all. Why? Because it's not yours to give. If I tithe, if I give the first 10% of my gross income, it's not mine to give. It belongs to the Lord. First fruits was about teaching this. It belongs to to the Lord. The first fruit, the tithe, belongs to God. That's the principle. It's not mine to give. It's His. It belongs to Him. In other words, tithing is not giving. Because you can't give someone something that already is theirs. Does that make sense? This is the concept of first fruits. Great, I showed up on Mother's Day and you're talking about finances in the church? No, I'm not. I'm not. Stay with me. In Israel, it was so serious that withholding the tithe from the Lord under Torah law was quite literally stealing from God. If you were a Jew under Torah law and you didn't give your tithe, you were robbing God. Well, who came up with that? God did. Malachi chapter 3 verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation. 
And according to God, if Israel withheld the first 10% from the Lord, the first fruits tithe, they were literally committing grand larceny. Someone says, whew, well, I'm glad I already gave of my tithe this month. No, you didn't. Because it was not your tithe to give. If you follow the principle of first fruits offering, it is not your tithe that you give graciously to the Lord. You understand, no, God graciously gives me 90% of the gross income. And I acknowledge that it all comes from Him by putting that first fruits tithe back into His service. By the way, giving according to Torah law may have amounted to as much as 23 and a third percent when you add in all the offerings and requirements of the Jewish people. 23 and a third percent of of the person's gross income which supported the priesthood and maintained the temple and took care of the issues in Israel. I'm just talking about the first 10 percent. But I'm not talking about your giving, folks. And I'm not talking about finances. I'm talking about faithfulness. And again, this is something that we so easily misunderstand in the church. The principle, the standard is faithfulness. Sadly, the majority of Christians either don't understand or completely reject this as a value. Some misunderstand the concept altogether. They say, well, I tithe of my time. It's a cop-out. It's a cop-out. Besides the fact, if you say, I tithe of my time, are you saying you're only going to give God 10% of your time? That's all you're going to give Him? 10%? We're not talking about how you spend your time or your money. Again, we're talking about learning to trust. Others say, well, I tithe of my talents. Again, you just give Him 10% of your talent? That's kind of limiting you see how silly we are my friends I, I know these excuses really really well because I used them for 35 years of my life I give my time I give my talent I give my energy I can't afford to give my money and that's where the concept was completely wrong in my own head it was not my money you realize nothing you have was earned if, if you believe this word everything you have is provided for you by the Lord. He has given it to you graciously. Well, how come He gave her more than me? Don't worry about her. You see, the thing is, He probably knew she could handle it better. I don't know, but just be happy with where you are with God. He knows you. He knows your needs. He responds to you as His son or as His daughter. But there is nothing I have that I can claim as my own. It's all from Him. Again, if if I understand His Word, and if I'm going to learn to trust Him, I've got to approach Him from this completely different perspective, which is, I know, an unnatural perspective. Do we really want to live in the natural? Are we really striving to be the natural man, the natural woman? Or are we looking for a supernatural life? A spiritual life? A life where we are being conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. To say things like I tithe of my time or I tithe of my talents or I give in other ways is a way of talking myself out of, listen, trusting 
God. Because I can't afford to. You know what God does? He begins with one of the most difficult, one of the toughest, tangible things for us to let go of, and that's our money. And I am talking as one who completely understands this. I mean, we're all in the same boat here. I don't think there's one among us who doesn't think about from time to time where our money and our finances are going, how we're spending things. We all have our budgets. We all know what's coming in, what's going out. We think about these things and God says, I'm going to give them a tool to develop faithfulness that will strike at the very heart of their natural self, their money. And we hate it. For year, I've told you this before, for years I sat in the back in church and the finance sermon would come along and I'd go, oh man. And I knew that the real issue was the church was not meeting its budget. Guess what? I don't care if the church is meeting its budget. That is not the point. If that was the point, we would be having special offerings and passing the plate, and I'd be wearing green every Sunday, and we'd be trying to get across the issue that we've got to get some money flowing in this place. That's not it. I think you know from our history as a fellowship that we have never been about the money. That's not the issue here. Yeah, there are boxes on the back wall. Give to the Lord. But from the very beginning, and Mike was in the meeting, Mike and I and Jeff, we established this as we prayed about it and thought about how we were going to do finances as a, as a fellowship. And we said, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to use money as anything other than a tool of faithfulness. Let a person's giving be unto the Lord to develop faithfulness in that person's heart. And by the way, it's why we don't have uh, fundraisers. It's why we don't do a lot of gimmicky things. I'm really opposed to gimmicky stuff in the church. There's way too much of it. Trying to get people to give in a special way. And we say, wait a minute. No, no. Just give to the Lord. Just develop faith. Some would say, what about grace? Aren't we under grace and therefore not under the old law and therefore not under tithing and all of that? Absolutely, we are under grace. Grace is not something you can buy. But you can respond to the faith, for the, to the grace of God with faithfulness. And so he continues to use finances and money not as a legalistic tithe, And some are, granted, some are legalistic with their tithing. Some churches preach tithing as a legalistic perspective, sign the membership covenant, and sign on that you're going to tithe. And the Mormon church calls you up and says, hey, have you tithed this month? We notice that you haven't. That's a wrong perspective. And some are legalistic. Some are arrogant with their tithe. They think that they're giving to a church, however much it is, grants them special position or special treatment. And some, maybe they don't realize it, but some even use their giving as a form of extortion. I'll just take my tithe and go elsewhere. Fine. Good. As long as you're tithing to the Lord, I'm happy. doesn't matter if it's here. You're not giving to me. You're not giving to the Bridge Fellowship. You're giving to the Lord. Elihu, that that one wise friend, there were several stupid friends of Job, but Elihu was the wise one, and he came to Job. And in Job 35, verse 7, he makes this comment, If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? 
As the Lord spoke to Job then out of the whirlwind in Job 41 verse 11, God says, who has given to me that I should repay? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Right? Do you accept that everything belongs to God? He created it, He made it all, therefore it's His. Anyone disagree with that concept? (laughs) Look at verse 35 in Romans 11. For right here, Paul quotes from the book of Job. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? I mean, really? We think that what we give is ours to give? Where do we ever get that idea? That is a fleshly, natural man idea, and it is not of the Spirit. Well, yeah, but tithing is still an Old Testament thing. Doesn't really apply to me. Yeah, I know, I've used that excuse too. Stay with me on this. Stay with the first principle. The principle of first fruits. If we accept that all of these things that God did with Israel, He did to establish not only rules and regulations in the Jewish law, but He did to establish principles, then they ought to apply to us as well. And look at verse 36 of Romans 11. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, I don't know what you give. I've established that before, but let me remind you, as a senior pastor, I have no idea what anybody gives at this church. And I don't want to know. And you don't want me to know. It's not my business. And furthermore, this is not a business meeting that we're having right now. It is a faithfulness meeting. The issue is faithfulness. Why did God command the first fruits principle for Israel? And why, you might ask me, why, Pastor Rick, do you still think this applies? And the same answer is for both. Tithing cultivates faithfulness. If someone comes to me and says, Rick, I just I want to be more faithful, do you tithe? First fruits? Well, no, I don't want to be that faithful. (laughs) I want to develop and grow my faith. Do you realize this is one of the most simple things that you can do to begin to develop a trusting God? Because what happens is every single time you write the check or draw out the money or do whatever you do to give it to the Lord, every time you are faced with the fact that what you have is His. It belongs to Him, not you. And I have confessed to you before, there are times that I have struggled with that. With that very concept. Sitting down, going over the bills, coming up to the tithe and going... No one's looking here. I don't have to write this. And I think I've also told you this before. Every time I have that thought, God says, then don't. You don't have to do it. And he just smiles. <laughs> I sense that in my heart, and it's like, no, I, I, I want to. Why? Because every time I trust the Lord financially, I trust Him more. Period. I am growing faithfulness. Tithing cultivates faithfulness. Jesus said so clearly, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth can't do it. One is going to win. Who do you want to win? 
Do you want your bank account to be the winner at the end of days? Or do you, like Antipas, want to, want to hear, you are my faithful one? Because it's going to be one or the other. The principle of first fruits was, again, to teach the people of Israel not to be legalistic, but to trust their God. Bring the first of the harvest and then trust me for the rest. Trust me to bring in the harvest. And so they gave the first fruits offering, knowing he had the harvest well in hand. Think about this with me, brothers and sisters of this fellowship. What kind of harvest might we see if the Bridge Christian Fellowship, to a person, practiced first fruits tithing? What kind, not how much money will we have in the bank, that's not the question. The question is, what kind of harvest might we see if we all practiced that first fruits mentality together? How might that affect the harvest of God? Now, we do, by the way, as a church. We practice first fruits tithing. We did from the very first offering. We took the first 10% of the very first offering and we got rid of it. We gave it away. Now it's 20. 20% of everything that comes in goes. So it's not to bless us and benefit us and enrich us as a, as a church fellowship locally, but to be an offering of faithfulness to develop in our leadership and among our pastors and staff and among all of us as a fellowship to develop faithfulness. Why is this building here? Because God is doing a harvest work. Why was this land provided outright for us as a church? Because God is doing a harvest work. And because He is developing a faithfulness, a trust. And I have watched the Lord faithfully provide for this fellowship more than a dozen years over and over and over. And it's one of the most exciting things to see happen. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 23, He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin. In other words, they were so literal in their tithing, they tithed their spices. How many of you go home to your spice rack and dole out 10% to make sure that goes to the Lord? Jesus is making a very serious point. You guys are so serious about your tithing. You tithe in the tiniest little thing. And have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And some read that and go, see, there it is. We shouldn't be worried about tithing. We should be about justice, and faithfulness, and mercy. And how are those things going to be paid for? How are you going to accomplish those things? Jesus says, these are the things you should have done, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the others. It's not about neglecting the tithes to do this. It's no, no, keep doing that. That's good. That's fine. You want to tithe your mint? Okay. Do it. And be faithful. Show mercy. Do justice. Ask yourself this question. What kind of justice, mercy, and, did you hear it? Faithfulness might be accomplished in this fellowship if we all practice the first fruits tithe faithfully. That's the question I put out to you all. How are we going to respond to the Lord to to really see 
What He wants to do. And, and I believe this. You know, I, I've had conversations with people. There are some who are into house churches. I don't have a problem with that. If that's where God has you, and meeting with a small group in a home is, is where He has you, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. That can be a really good thing. I think it can be a really bad thing if you limit it. Because there's nothing in the Bible that says we are to limit ourselves to 8 to 10 people. But the concept of being a house church is not a bad idea. And there are those all over the place actually here in the Northwest. Here's the reason why we're a larger growing church and why we didn't stay in the living room at the Gilmore's house. Because there were things that 20 people in a living room could not accomplish for the Lord that we can here and now. And so much of that does, yes, come back to our first fruits offering to the Lord. Where there is more people gathered, there is more money. And where there's more money, and I'm going to be crass here, but hey, where there's more money, more can be done for the kingdom. We can use unrighteous wealth, as Jesus says, for the kingdom. There's more provided to do the things that we need to do. That we're called to do. Yeah, well, I don't know if I like how you guys spend your money. Okay, well, then get somewhere else. Again, my point is not to try and deepen the giving here at the bridge. It's to encourage faithfulness as first fruits faithfulness. Give it to the Lord. And I would encourage you to give in a way that you have no personal uh, direction in it. That you can't determine where it's going. You just give it and trust the Lord. So that's the difference between the idea of a first fruits offering and someone who says, well, I give 1.5% to Compassion International. I love Compassion. Great thing. Well, and, and then I give 3% to World Vision. And then I have this missionary couple over here I give 2% to. And I divvy it all up. Well, that's great. That's not first fruits tithing. Because you are directing where it goes. You are deciding how the money is to be spent instead of saying, Lord, I'm just going to give it and I'm going to hands off. And what happens when you do that is your faith grows. Because you're trusting Him to do what needs to be done. And by the way, trust me, if there are those who are stewards of the finances of this fellowship and they are being bad stewards, they will pay for it. It will be brought out. God doesn't mess around with that stuff. But that's why I like church tithing rather than organizational because I have no control. I just give and then, you know what, it's up to the Lord. It's also why at the Bridge Fellowship we don't go down for uh, pet projects or ministries. If someone says, hey, I want to give a special offering to the youth ministry, my response is, you need to put it in the box and trust the Lord. But I want the youth ministry to get it. Well, I know that's what you want. Maybe God doesn't. So trust Him. And if it's something the Lord wants to do, it's going to happen. A prophetical first peace offering, a principled first peace offering. Let me end with this. It's one more thing. And that is a practical first peace. P-E-A-C-E. A practical first peace. You want to have peace? Listen. The real irony in how we view tithes and offerings is that when I nickel and dime the Lord or when I even outright steal from Him, I'm robbing myself. I'm just hurting me. God's going to do what God's going to do. God is going to take care of His kingdom. But when I don't give, and even the word give, we've got to find another word. When I don't first fruits, I'm hurting me. 
If you start with Him, money-wise, He consecrates the whole harvest. If you begin with Him, then suddenly all that is coming in is really for Him and about Him, and you're completely thinking differently. And there is a practical first piece. How are you doing financially? You don't have to answer. You know. How are you doing right now financially? How are your personal finances, are? how are they going? This is completely counterintuitive from a natural perspective. But the first thing that I ask when someone comes to me and says, I'm financially strapped and I need help. The first thing I ask is, don't give me the answer, but are you tithing? Well, I can't even afford to pay my bills and you want me to start? That's just, that's just weird, man. From a spiritual perspective, it's spot on. Why is that? Listen to this. Uh, let me just read you. This is from the book of Haggai, the prophet, who came back with the exiles. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, and no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. How many people feel like you got a purse with holes? Now Brian's moved away. He's the only guy among us I know had a purse. But... <laughs> holes? Man, there's never enough. There's just never enough. Lord, why? Verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. And when you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Now, God is talking about the returned Jewish exiles and the fact that they came back, laid the foundation for the temple, and then went on about their lives building their own homes and left the foundation with no temple built. So he sends Haggai, the prophet, who then comes to the people and begins to speak, look, you got some nice homes here. There's a nice little tract housing here in Jerusalem. Look at the temple mount. What's going on? Why is nothing working for you? Because you were sent back here to build the house of God. That's why you're here. The physical issue was the temple. The spiritual issue was unfaithfulness. They were being unfaithful to the Lord. And if you ever wonder why you can't seem to get ahead, maybe you ought to start with the first fruits. Pause and think, hold on. I'm trying so hard to make everything work, and I am not trusting God. Malachi 3.10 God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. And God says, test me thou now in this. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. This is not prosperity gospel. I'm not saying if you give, you're just going to become rich. You may not. In fact, one of the greatest things God does is cause us to do this first fruits trusting in Him and then He decreases our income. Why would He do that? So that we trust Him more. 
And as we trust Him, He blesses. And I can promise you this much. He will meet every need if you seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. You don't worry about these things if you're seeking Him, if you're trusting Him. And by the way, Malachi 3.11 is a verse we often skip. I think it's fascinating. God says, if you bring the tithe into the storehouse, listen, then I will rebuke the devourer for you. So that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. Nor will you get that flat tire that you didn't know you were going to get, but God kept you from getting. Nor will suddenly there be things that are devouring the income. God says, I'll rebuke that. If you start with trusting in me. The devourer is whatever steals the harvest. And God says to Israel, if you bring your first fruits, I will consecrate the harvest. He says to you, He says to me, if you'll bring your first fruits, you'll develop faithfulness. I'll consecrate that faithfulness. And there is blessing promised in testing God. It's the only time God says, test me. The rest of the time, we're really not called on to test God. But in this one, He says, test me. I challenge you. To test me, the Lord says, with the mentality of first fruits giving. Man, in light of the riches of God's grace, what is 10% of your income anyway? Seems like a lot on paper, but when you think about eternity, it's nothing. It's a pittance by comparison to God's promises. In fact, The way I look at and I'm understanding now first fruits offering is this. It is just a gardening tool for the cultivation of faithfulness. Psalm 37 verse 7 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. I can't get much more practical than this, my friends. You want to cultivate faithfulness? Start with first fruits offering. It is one of the best, most tangible things that you can do. And last question, more than personal finances, ask yourself this. How is your personal faithfulness? How is your faithfulness to the Lord? Prophetically, the first fruits was all about Jesus. Principally, the first fruits belongs to God anyway. And practically, the application of first fruits brings peace. I'll read this to you and we're done. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 25. Where Jesus on that great sermon on the mount. He declares, for this reason I say to you. After saying you cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason he says I say to you. Don't be worried about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or for your body as to what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself, did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. 
Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first His kingdom. First. His righteousness. And all these things, He says, will be added to you as well. And Jesus is talking about having first peace. A first peace. This is His offer to you and to me. What you do with it is your own. How you respond to this, that's between you and God. But again I say to you, we have just been given one of the most practical things we can even think about doing to to develop and cultivate faithfulness in our lives. Jesus said in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you. Why? What did you appoint us for, Lord? That you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. And again, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. May we be a fellowship who does not hold back anything that belongs to God. And if we are such a fellowship and if we are such people individually, we will be more peaceful, we will be more fruitful, and we will assuredly be more faithful.